Chapter 2. Young Folk's History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. The Beginnings of the Trouble. The bitter feeling in the colonies had begun when, more than a hundred years before the Revolution, Parliament had passed the first of what came to be known as the Navigation Acts. This was in 1651, and by these laws the people in America were forbidden to trade with any other country than England, or to receive any ships of foreign nations within their harbors. This action of Parliament had been named at New England more than at any other settlements in the New World, for the people of these colonies were, even at that early time, beginning to engage in commerce. It was an easy matter to build a ship from the timber cut from the forests that abounded, and then to make a cargo of the lumber which remained after the vessel was completed. It was a common practice for the men and even the boys who dwelt in some little seaboard hamlet to work together all through the winter in building a schooner, and then when the spring came a crew would be made up, the vessel would be loaded with lumber and such other articles as the sparsely settled region afforded, and the roughly contrived boat would sail away for some port in the West Indies or elsewhere. The cargo would be exchanged, and with the new wealth on board the schooner would sail for home. Very frequently the cargo on the return voyage would consist of rum and molasses, and after it had been disposed of in Boston, the proceeds would be divided among all those who had had a share in the enterprise. Boys and even old women as well as men were accustomed to bring their small contributions, and even poultry and all sorts of valuables were offered, so that when the vessel started on its voyage, it would contain a motley collection that would surprise the captain of a modern vessel if he could behold it. These ventures were frequently very profitable and many a fortune had its foundations laid in the shrewd dealings of these thrifty people. This Navigation Act was therefore very unpopular with the New England people, and with the Virginians who also suffered from it, and it soon became a dead letter. The revenue officers became careless, and it was an open secret that a bribe was seldom refused, so that the trade with foreign countries went on just as if there had been no laws against it. They had also given slight heed to the laws against manufacturing in the colonies, so when, more than a hundred years after the hated laws had been passed, England seriously began to enforce them, the colonists, who had not thought very much about the matter, and had apparently cared less so long as they were left to themselves, suddenly realized that the mother country was claiming the right to tax her colonies just as she chose, and that they themselves had really nothing to say about it. It was in 1764 when England first declared she had this right. Perhaps her rulers wanted to see just how the people would feel about it in America for they waited a year before they passed the act which has since become famous and is now known as the Stamp Act. George Grenville, who was practically the head of the British government, had prepared the act himself, and it was passed by Parliament in the spring of 1765, and was to go into effect on the following November. Newspapers and almanacs could not be published in America, no papers used in lawsuits could be had, not even a certificate of marriage could be given, unless these stamps, to be had only from the British government, were placed upon them. The declaration that the old Navigation Acts would now be enforced was bad enough, but this Stamp Act was worse, and made the colonists furiously angry. Then when Parliament decided to send British soldiers over here to see that the new laws were obeyed, fuel was added to the fire, for in addition to their hatred of the soldiers, they knew that the Redcoats were to be paid from money received from the sale of the stamps so that in reality the Americans were paying the soldiers who were forcing them to obey laws that they hated and declared to be unjust. Just as soon as word was received in America, it seemed as if the people had been waiting for that one event to bind them together. 
In every colony the men prepared to resist, though of course at this time they had no thought of becoming independent of England. It was the law and only the few foolish and obstinate rulers that they hated. And indeed it is well known today that all through the War of the Revolution, the heart of the great English people was really with the struggling colonists. But the Americans were just as angry as if they had had no friends across the sea. There were mass meetings held, and such eloquent men as Patrick Henry of Virginia and James Otis of Massachusetts greatly stirred the people by their burning words. The speakers were on fire, and the audiences ready to take fire, so that it is no wonder that flames speedily burst forth. What a pleasure it would have been to us today if only we could have heard the words and seen the excited crowds. We have some of their speeches, but they are only words. All the excitement, anger, and determination of the men cannot be handed down. Just as fast as the different assemblies of the various colonies met, they declared that Parliament had no right to tax the colonies, and the people here would never submit. Organizations of men called Sons of Liberty were formed to help the resistance. And then, what angered and astonished Lord North and King George more than all else, just as soon as the stamps were sent over here, they were seized and burned by what the English called mobs. If they really were, quote, mobs, unquote, they were very orderly ones, for they went quietly about their work, and no other property suffered any damage. The stamp officers themselves were so frightened by the anger of the people that they very quickly resigned. And so it came to pass that when the day in November 1765 came, when the Stamp Act was to go in effect, the law fell flat for the simple reason that there were no stamps to be sold and no stamp officers to sell them. In Virginia, Patrick Henry had introduced a series of resolutions in the assembly that declared the people of America were free-born men and would remain free or die in the defense of their liberty. Some of the Tory members shouted treason and called upon him to stop. But the young orator was too excited to heed them, and most of the men felt just as he did. In Massachusetts, James Otis had suggested that a circular should be sent to all the colonies, and that each colony should send delegates to a general congress to be held in New York to devise and consider what further could be done to resist the hated act. All except four of the colonies at once agreed to the proposal, and sent delegates to the congress which was held in New York on the 7th day of October, 1765. Virginia had no representatives there, for her governor had succeeded in breaking up the assembly, and so none could be appointed. But Patrick Henry's resolutions had been printed and scattered throughout the colony, and everyone understood just how the people felt and what they were willing to do. Georgia, North Carolina, and New Hampshire were the other three colonies that had no one to represent them in New York, but their people were as strongly stirred as were those of the others. There was a British fleet off the city at the time when the Congress met, and General Gage had a force of regulars there. But neither guns nor redcoats could stop the angry Americans. They passed resolutions and declared what they believed the rights of the colonies to be, and united in a petition to the King and Parliament to respect those rights. The language of the Congress was very mild, much milder than that which the people were using. But if Lord North had only stopped to think of what the meaning itself was, he might have read between the lines and seen the danger that was threatening. Very naturally, the actions of the American people surprised England and her rulers, who had never thought that the colonies would take their deeds so seriously. The Friends of America, and particularly the English manufacturers, who had no desire to have their goods rejected by the buyers in America because of the unjust tax, pleaded for a repeal of the hated law, and so strong were their protests that within a year the Stamp Act was repealed. Parliament still declared that it had a right to tax the colonies if it chose to do so, 
and as the Americans now thought they had nothing more to fear, they made no formal protest, although some of them, including the New York Assembly, still refused to provide supplies for British soldiers that had been quartered upon them, and others were having constant quarrels with their governors who had been appointed by the Crown. For the most part, however, the colonists declared themselves to be, quote, loyal subjects of the king, God bless him, unquote. They still continued to plead for a representation in Parliament, declaring that then, when they had a voice in making their own laws, no possible trouble could arise between the mother country and her children across the sea. Many of the prominent Englishmen were in favor of granting this request, and declared that it was only just and reasonable. But the king was a very obstinate man, and said that he would never yield to such a demand, and would soon show his rebellious subjects in America that they would be brought to terms in a manner that would convince them that it was never wise to dispute the will of their divinely appointed ruler. What would have been the effect if the just request of the Americans had been granted, and they had secured a representation in Parliament, we may never know. But in all probability, the history we are reading would have been of a very different character from that which it now is. Matters became more quiet after the repeal of the Stamp Act, but only for a brief time. In 1767, Parliament passed an act that angered the Americans even more than the previous law had. A tax was now to be placed upon the tea and some other articles which were exported to America. Revenue commissioners were to be sent to the colonies, and aided by the redcoats they were to punish any who refused to pay the tax. And the New York Assembly was forbidden to make any more laws until it should provide supplies for the British regulars, as long before it had been ordered to do. The effect of this new act was immediately evident. The people began to understand that it was tyranny they were resisting. There was no more talk of sending representatives to Parliament. And some of the bolder men, like John Adams of Massachusetts, though they did not talk about it openly, began to believe that there was no hope or relief so long as the colonies remained joined to the mother country. Without any formal action, most of the people quietly resolved that they would neither buy nor drink any more tea if it had to be bought of England and the detested tax upon it paid. It is true there were two parties in America, the one in favor of resisting the new law, being known as the Whigs, and those who believed the king could do no wrong, and that whatever he commanded must be right, known as the Tories. The Whigs, however, so greatly outnumbered the Tories that it almost seemed as if the entire nation was aroused. For a number of years now, everything seemed to be going from bad to worse. In North Carolina, the people had so severe a quarrel with their royal governor that they had shut him up in prison and declared they could and would govern themselves. Another governor they drove out of the colony. In Boston, the British revenue collectors had seized John Hancock's sloop Liberty, but this action had made the people so angry that they chased the officers until they were compelled to take refuge in a frigate at that time anchored in Boston Harbor. General Gage and four British regiments were then stationed in the town, but the people did not appear to be very greatly alarmed by the presence of the redcoats. There was constant quarreling and frequent street fights, and even the boys joined in the fray, pelting the soldiers at times with their snowballs. One day, the 5th of March, 1770, the soldiers became so angry that they fired on the people, killing three and wounding many others. This was known as the Boston Massacre, and served to increase the hatred and anger of all the colonists still more. In 1772, a number of Rhode Island men captured and burned the Gaspy, one of the king's boats that had been collecting the revenue from the ships that had entered Providence. In New York City, there had been fights between the people and the soldiers who were sent there for the help of the revenue officers. And, indeed, all over the colonies, the same spirit of resistance seemed to be becoming bolder and bolder. Parliament called the people, quote, rebels when it learned of these deeds. 
but calling names did not appear to have much effect. Those who had burned the Gaspee were ordered to be sent to England for trial, but as it was necessary first to catch the men before they could be sent, there was necessarily a failure to obey the command. Learning that Americans were not greatly alarmed by threats, Parliament tried a new plan. The East India Company, which sent most of the tea to America, was not becoming very rich now that the determined people simply refused to drink their tea, or if they did drink any, they were very certain that it came from Holland and not from England, and they added their pleas that something might be done to bring about a better condition of affairs. So Parliament took off all the taxes that had been imposed on goods sent to America, except that on tea, and this they thought they had fixed all right when arrangements were made with the English tea merchants in 1773 to send cargoes of tea to America, at a price that was three pence lower than that which had been before paid. And this they thought they had fixed all right when arrangements were made with English tea merchants in 1773 to send cargoes of tea to America, at a price that was three pence lower than that which had before been paid. The tax of three pence, or about six cents a pound, still remained. But at the new price, not only was it thought that no more tea would be bought of the Dutchmen, but that at this price the Americans would buy English tea and pay the tax when the price was no higher than it had been before the tax had been placed upon it. It was a shrewd plan, for what the king wanted was mainly to get, quote, his rebellious subjects in America, unquote, to acknowledge his right to tax them if he chose to do so. But it failed to work. The people in New York, Philadelphia, and some other places just refused to permit the tea ships to land their cargoes, and sent many of them straight back to England with the same load they had brought over here. At Boston they tried to do the same thing, but there were so many of the king's soldiers there that the officers would not permit the tea ships to leave the harbor. This angered the people so much that they had what has since been called, quote, the Boston Tea Party, unquote. A band of men, quietly and in perfect order, having disguised themselves as Indians, boarded the ships, and on December 16, 1773, threw the tea, consisting of 340 chests, into the harbor. There was another, quote, tea party, unquote, held not long afterward, which was just as remarkable as the one in Boston, although not much was ever made of it. Perhaps there was no one to, quote, write it up, unquote, as the New England men did of their, quote, party, unquote. The East India Company, not being willing to give up the attempts to have their tea used in America, and having failed at Boston, sent some ships down the shore, thinking perhaps that Philadelphia would not prove to be quite so obstinate as the New England town had been. The vessels ran up the Cohansey Creek in New Jersey, where they thought the cargo could be quietly and safely landed, and the tea carried into the towns without any disturbance having been aroused. But the young Jersey men were as bold as the Boston men, and perhaps even a little bolder. For in broad daylight, without even stopping to disguise themselves as Indians or as anything else, they seized the tea on board the vessels in the Cohansey Creek and, making a pile of it, had a bonfire that must have delighted the hearts of the small boys of that day. Of course, the revenue officers were very angry, and as the young men who engaged in the deed were known, two of them were young preachers, they tried to have them indicted. But as the sentiment of the people of the region was too strong to be resisted, it was found impossible to bring a charge against them, and as the war itself broke out not long afterward, the matter was dropped for greater things. The feelings of the people were daily becoming more strongly aroused. The newspapers also had no small share in fanning the flame, and the words they figuratively hurled at one another and at the people that opposed them were such as would seem very strange to us today. For example, in the Pennsylvania Gazette, a strong Whig paper, there appeared for a year a picture of a snake broken into ten pieces and underneath it were the words, quote, unite or die, unquote. 
This design was copied and used by others of the patriotic papers, some substituting, quote, join or die, unquote, for the motto of the Gazette, but the effect upon the readers was the same. Rivington's Royal Gazette of New York was the most prominent Tory paper, and one of its writers referred to the cut in the Pennsylvania Gazette as, quote, a scandalous and saucy reflection, unquote. He, in turn, was answered by one who signed himself, quote, New Jersey, unquote, and in his reply dropped into poetry that new england's abused and by sons of sedition is granted without either prayer or petition and that his a scandalous saucy reflection that merits the soundest severest correction is readily granted how came it to pass because she is pestered by snakes in the grass who by lying and cringing and such like pretensions get places once honoured disgraced with pensions and you mr pensioner instead of repentance if i don't mistake you have wrote your own sentence for by such snakes as this New England's abused, and the head of the serpent, you know, must be bruised. Mr. Rivington himself, the editor of the Royal Gazette, was a very courtly man, exceedingly genial and pompous in his manner, a very strong Tory, and was trusted implicitly by the officers of the king. One time, when he had had something in his paper expressive of his supreme contempt for the rebels, the words were shown to Ethan Allen, the bold, rough soldier who afterward captured Ticonderoga. Allen was so angry when he read the abusive words that he declared he would, quote, lick Rivington the first opportunity he had, unquote. Word of his intention was brought to the Tory editor, who prepared himself to receive his visitor. The story of that meeting is related by Mr. Rivington himself. I was sitting, after a good dinner alone, when I heard an unusual noise in the street and the huzzah from the boys. I was in the second story, and stepping to the window saw a tall figure in tarnished regimentals with a large cocked hat and an enormous sword he came up to my door and stopped i could see no more my heart told me it was ethan allen i was certain the hour of reckoning had come there was no retreat i shut down my window and retired behind my table and a bottle of madeira mr staples my clerk came in paler than ever and clasping his hand said quote, master he has come i know it he entered the store and asked if james rivington lived here i answered yes is he at home he said i will go see i replied and now master what is to be done show him up i said there was a fearful moment of suspense i heard him on the stairs his long sword clanking at every step in he stalked is your name james rivington he demanded it is sir and no man could be more happy than i to see colonel ethan allen sir i have come not another word my dear colonel until you have taken your seat and a glass of old madeira but sir i don't think it proper not another word colonel taste this wine i have had it in glass for ten years he took the glass swallowed the wine smacked his lips and shook his head approvingly sir i have come not another word until you have taken another glass and then my dear colonel we will talk of old affairs and i have some droll events to detail in short we parted as good friends as if we never had cause to be otherwise so ethan allen the captor of forts was himself taken but the incident shows the feelings of the people, and perhaps the power of the press at the time. Certainly it shows the power of James Rivington, the editor of the most prominent Tory paper. Not only the newspapers, but also the pulpits were now doing their part to stir up the people, who apparently did not require very much arousing. The lawyers, orators, and writers were becoming bolder every day. The strain could not be endured much longer, and at last the tie that had bound the two countries together was snapped. Blood was shed. Though the first battle was not fought at Concord and Lexington, as we have sometimes been told, it took place far from New England's soil, 
and the determined men who entered the action were aroused not only by the Stamp Act and the tax on tea, but by the four acts which Parliament, now angry and acting foolishly as most angry people do, soon passed. Quote, the four intolerable acts, unquote, as they were called, became the last that the English king inflicted upon the colonies. For though he did have other acts passed afterward, they had no effect upon America, which had virtually, though not openly, cast off the ties that bound it to old England. And before the fighting patriots themselves were fully aware of what they were doing, they had become an independent nation, though as yet they could not be said to be a free people. End of chapter 2